Right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 again, and we are going to, Lord willing, we're going to conclude the conversion of Saul. I wrote in my notes, I, I titled, the title I wrote at the top is Saul Meets Jesus. Saul Meets Jesus. So in Acts chapter 9, we'll start in verse number 1 again, and we'll read uh, through verse number 9. We'll take a breath, and then we will read the rest in a little bit, Okay. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. The Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, uh, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And, he, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there, he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. All right, let's pray again. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word once again. And as we uh, renew our heart and mind to uh, to look at your word afresh, we pray that you'd give us understanding. Lord, we pray that you'd truly meet with us and guide us as we study your word. Lord, we need it, just like Brother, uh, Brother Ari and, and my son uh, just, uh, just saying a minute ago, we need you. And uh, Lord, we just depend upon you for everything, even as, even as Saul learned at this moment how much he needed you. Uh, so, Lord, we need you now, and we pray that your blessing would be upon the study of your word, that it would strengthen your people, that it would increase your people in their knowledge and wisdom, that they would uh, be edified, that they would be, uh, that, they would be, that they would be able to grow through the word, even as we study tonight, little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept. So please give us understanding and bless us and meet with us and stir our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we learned about Saul. We learned the we we studied uh, uh, basically almost exhaustively, and saw all the different verses that show us the history of Saul of Tarsus, where he's from, what kind of family he had, what his religious background was, uh, what his kind of spiritual mentality was up until up until this moment, and uh, we saw that he was a very sincere man, a man who who served God as he as he viewed it, anyhow, uh, with sincerity, but nevertheless was a man who, uh, who uh, was ignorant of the fact that he was just utterly and totally in rebellion to God's will. And he had no idea. He had no idea whatsoever. And so what I want to do is I want to start in verse number 4, right where the, uh, the story really picks up and where... Uh, Saul is with these men, and they're going into Damascus. 
And the Bible says in verse 3, there was shined a light round about him from he- round about him, a light from heaven. Now he said in another place in Acts that this light was above the light of the sun, above the light of the sun, and it was noon. If you look in uh, the, the other accounts of this his of his conversion, so this light was brilliantly bright. It was a, it was brighter than the sun in, in its strength at, at noon. And, uh, and of course, it was the, the, glory of, the glory of God. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, hold your place here. We know that he's going he's gonna to meet this man named Ananias in verse number 10. So look at what it says in verse number 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And him said the Lord in a vision... Ananias. Now pause here, a little bit of trivia. Can anybody tell me who, 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 uh, what other character in the Bible shares a name with Ananias? The most, uh, I guess the most well, there are several actually, but the most well-known character that shares a name with Ananias. This is a little bit of a curveball. All right, that's one. That's good. I'm thinking of one in the Old Testament. Any guesses? Going once. Going twice. How many of you have heard of Shadrach? Shadrach. Well, Shadrach's Hebrew name, that was his Babylonian name. Shadrach's Hebrew name was Hananiah. Hananiah, which is, this is the Greek form of that Hebrew name, Ananias. And uh, so he shares a name with uh, with. Shadrach with Hananiah, who was, of course, a faithful, young, but faithful uh, servant of God there in Babylon. All right, so in verse 10, the Bible says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said, said the Lord in a vision. Now pause here a second. In this vision, the Lord calls, just, just like in verse number 4, the Lord calls out to Saul, and in verse number 10, the Lord calls out to Ananias. But do you notice a difference? The Lord calls out to Saul twice, and he calls out to Ananias, but once. You notice that? Not only that, but there's another difference in that when, in verse number 4, the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And then verse 5 said, he answered, Who art thou, Lord? So Saul did not know who was talking to him. He had to get the identification but when Ananias, as soon as Ananias heard the word of the Lord in this vision, as soon as he heard his name called, he immediately knew who was talking. You see that little difference? He said, he didn't say, who art thou, Lord? He said, behold, I, Lord. And that's actually, you see the italics. Well, the, the italics are given to f- fill the grammar of English. But, it's, but he said, I'm here. It's me. I know who you are, and, and I'm your servant, and I'm here. And the difference is stark, because what we find is that even though with all of Saul's, with all of Saul's um, religion, with all of Saul's uh, being a Pharisee, being of the strictest sect of Judaism, it would be something equivalent to an uh, roughly equivalent to like an Orthodox Jew. Many of the things in Orthodox Judaism descend directly from this period, with the uh, with the especially with the Pharisees. 
I was actually looking at some of the prayers. Uh, I'll, I'll mention this in a minute, but I was actually looking at some of the prayers that Orthodox Jews pray because they pray three times a day and they have prescribed prayers that they pray. And uh, I noticed one of the prayers, it's just stood, stood out to me, especially in our study of Acts. One of the prayers, uh, it, it talks about, it, it affirms, I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but it affirms the belief in the resurrection from the dead. One of the morning, I believe it's one of the morning prayers that the Orthodox Jews pray in Hebrew. And, uh, but what was interesting to me is that it emphasizes that doctrine. Well, that doctrine was set in opposition to the, the doctrine of the Sadducees, which did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. So the Orthodox Juda, uh, Judaism, the prayers of, of, of that group descend from this. And it's, if, I'm sure it's been changed over the years, but, uh, but basically uh, that's... Uh, with all of that religion, with all that Saul had, had attempted to accomplish, strictly observing not only the law of Moses, that would be, that would be, that would be the, the core, right? But then that fence that surrounded the law of Moses that was the tradition, right? The tradition of the fathers. He observed all of that too and held everybody to account to it as well. And so Saul, with, with all of that, uh, his attempts at keeping the law, his belief that he was righteous by his, the works of the law, with all of the, no doubt, the prescribed prayers that he prayed three times a day, uh, you know, the scriptures he no doubt memorized, which is all a part of that, uh, of Judaism at that time. With all of that, he did not know God. Think about it. He had religion to the nth degree. I mean, he was way more righteous than we are, you know, as far as like the outward lifestyle. With all that, did not know God. The voice of the Lord came to him, and he did not recognize it. And there's other people in the scripture. Remember little Samuel in the, in the temple? Samuel, Samuel. You remember that? It was such a, that's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? A little kid don't, doesn't know God, just innocent as can be. The Lord calls out to him, but, but he, the Lord calls over and over and over because Samuel doesn't know the voice of the Lord. He doesn't know God. He doesn't recognize that voice. And did you know that in our relationship to God, knowing the voice of God is something that Jesus specifically pointed out as a mark of his sheep? All right, hold your place here, and let's look at that passage. Actually, we'll look at two passages, but both in John chapter 10. So if you would look there with me, John 10, verse, first of all, look at verse number I think I wrote down the wrong chapter. Hang tight. Indeed I did. All right. So I'll, re I'll just read this. This is in John 20. I forgot. I put a one instead of a two. All right. All right. John 20 verse 16 says this. Uh, well, let me get the verse above it. Verse 15 says, this is at, at the tomb now. All right. This is at the tomb of, of Christ. He has already risen from the dead. And Mary is coming to seek him. 
And verse 15, she doesn't recognize Jesus. And verse 15 says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou, have, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, One time, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. In other words, Jesus spoke her name, specifically her name, one to listen, that that truth of the name of the Christian is some is a truth that runs throughout the scripture. Adam, where art thou? Right? Adam, calling out to Adam. You get to the end of the book, what do you see? You see the Lord giving out stones with people's names on it. And the only people that know know the name on that stone is the person who received it in the Lord. That's it. It's a special, uh, uh, maybe a, if you could say, uh, an, maybe a, a token of a special relationship we have to God individually. All right, so the Lord says to Mary, Mary, she hears her name one time from the lips of Christ, and she turns about immediately because she recognizes the voice of the shepherd. Now go to John 10 and verse, uh, let's look at verse number Four, the Lord speaking about the good shepherd, he says this, of course, he's referring to himself. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. You see that? And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers. Drop down to verse number 27. Verse 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see this? There's a, there's a strong connection between knowing the Lord, like in a, not knowing of God, but knowing God personally, and knowing and recognizing His voice. Now, here's the thing. Every one of us in this room that is a child of God hears the voice of Jesus in the person and by means of the Holy Spirit who's in us. You know what? I, I, we, don't, we don't mean to be hocus pocus or boogie whatever. You know, boogie, I was going to say boogie woogie, but that doesn't sound right, does it? Uh, this, is, this is not like some magic thing or anything like that, but here's the reality. Every one of you has had, every one of you that is a child of God has, had, has, has experienced and knows what it is for the Lord to speak to you. And it's hard to describe that God is talking to you. It's hard to describe how you know His voice. Like if I were to say to my wife, if I were to say, how do you know it's me talking? So say I call her from an unlisted number and, she, and it's not on her con, in her contacts on her phone. And she, sa- she says, hello. And I say, hey, Allison immediately she knows my voice. But if I were to ask her, how do you know it's me? That's hard to describe, isn't it? How do you know Brother Dennis's voice? I mean, it's like, well, the frequency. No, you just just know it. You've heard it before. You've associated it with that person. You know what it's like. And so you immediately recognize it. And that's exactly the way the voice of the Lord is. We hear all kinds of voices in this world. Listen, we hear all kinds of voices Voices of, uh, of, of religion, voices of morality, voices in the media, voices all around us from other humans around us. 
There are spiritual voices that we hear that, that are uh, demonic voices that are speaking through the mouths of people. We hear come in our ears all the time. But I'm telling you, a, a believer, a sheep, one of God's sheep, one of God's children, recognizes the voice of the shepherd. And it's almost inexplicable. It's hard to, to describe and understand. And I, I know we have the Word of God, and that is, that's definitely part of it. But it comes, it's the combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God together where we recognize. That's, that's, why, that's why you see things in Scripture about when, uh, when someone goes off into false doctrine, especially as it relates to core doctrines like who Christ is. That's why the Bible says they're not of us. It's because they don't, they're not hearing the voice of the Lord. They're, they're not, they, don't, they don't recognize when the Lord's speaking. And so they're wandering off. They're wandering off. And of course, one of the ways we hear the Lord's voice, sadly, at least for me, is in correction. Uh, we, we, we probably more than, more, than, more than every other time, we hear the Lord's voice in correction. And we just want to, you know, facepalm ourselves over and over and over because that's, that's the time we most frequently hear Him. So this is, a, this is a biblical truth and we find it in Acts. Go back to Acts, Acts 9. Here's Saul, the Lord says his name twice and he doesn't recognize the name of uh, the, the, the voice of the Lord speaking to him. As I said, with all his religion, it could not, it could not, could not introduce him to God. He did not know God. I thought about all those prayers as I looked at them, all those times that those Orthodox Jews pray three times a day, prescribed prayers, wrote memorized prayers they pray to this day in 2023, three times a day. Praying, oftentimes good things, sometimes quoting scripture, but they've turned what is good into vain repetitions, repeating these things, repeating these things, repeating these things. Not to say they never pray outside of that, but that's the prescribed prayers. And Jesus actually nailed, he, he said, did he not say to the Jews? He said, to the Jews now, not to the Gentiles. He said to the Jews in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, Jews, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. And yet, what is that? What is dead religion? Hap- what is dead religion done? It whether it doesn't matter if it's if it's Judaism, if it's Islam, if it's Roman Catholicism, if it's Buddhism. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what religion you pick. They all end in dead prayers, repeated prayers. But when you look at the Bible, look at the Davids, look at the Solomons, look at the Isaiahs, look at the Jeremiahs, look at the Ezekiels, look at these men, these these people who serve God, the Samuels. Whenever you see their prayers, you don't see repeated prayers. You see men pouring out, the Daniels, pouring out their heart to God from their heart, not prescribed prayers, repeating things. You see a living relationship to God. That's not what Saul had. (laughs) Saul had religion. And that religion was reflected in the fact that he did not know God. When the voice of the Lord spoke to him, he did not recognize that voice. He had no access to God. His religion gave him no access because the only access to God is Christ. It was only Christ. All right, so in verse number 5, the Bible says, He says, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Whom thou persecutest. 
And in verse number four, again, he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, when you read this, it, to me, a very natural question is, what would be more natural to say is, why persecutest my disciples? Right? That, I mean, that would, be, that would be what I would ask. You know, if, I mean, just, you know, speak, I speak as a fool. But why persecutest my disciples? But the Lord did not say that. The Lord said, me. So, by the Lord saying that, what you have is these people, these believers, these disciples who have identified with Christ by their confession of their faith and who have identified with Christ by their baptism. That's a one way to identify with Christ. They have said, we are His. We're with Him. So He identifies with them. And He says, when you touch them, you're touching me. It's not just when the Lord talks about his body, the church. And we ought, listen, we ought to be careful. When you or when I do harm to one of God's people, we are doing harm and sinning against the Lord, the head of the body. So it's not just a doctrinal truth where the Lord's just kind of given us an illustration of the church by saying it's a body. No, he means it very literally. It is his body. It is not like a body. It is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And when, when a, a part of his church is injured, he feels it. For it is his body. You see, it is his body. That should, that should affect our prayers. When we take our, our sorrow, we take our our uh, pain and our suffering to the Lord. We take it to Him and He identifies with us. You see this? When someone touches us, when someone hurts us, when we feel persecution, the Lord identifies. He says, I am them. You see that? I am them. He identifies with us. Now we also see here in verse uh, in verse 4 and 5, how Jesus identifies himself. You know, it's not very often, once you get out of the Gospels, it's not very often that you hear and see the name of Jesus by itself. Did you know that? If you read your Bible and kind of pay attention, what you'll see is when you read the book of Acts and you read the epistles and you read the Revelation, there are a few kind of times here and there, but most of the time when the Lord is identified, he's identified by his titles like Christ, or the Savior, or Jesus Christ, or Christ the Lord, or something like that, because the word Christ and Savior, and those things are titles given to him, all right? But you rarely find the name Jesus referred to, referring to Jesus after his earthly ministry. Now, in his earthly ministry, it makes sense because he was on earth, he was living a, a human life. But afterward, he's been exalted but here the Lord identifies himself as Jesus. In fact, if you look at chapter 22, look at that real quick. Chapter 22, verse number 8. This is another account. Just gives a little more, I guess, a fuller view of, of what uh, Jesus said to Saul. Verse 8 said, and I, and I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. 
So he actually, the Lord, in, in, in actuality, what we have in Acts 9 is just partially part of what Jesus said, but the full, part, the full uh, statement of Christ in answer to Saul's question was, I am Jesus of Nazareth. You know what that was? That was the name everybody called him. That's how he is identified in the book of Acts by unbelievers. You know that? That's how the unbelievers identify. Because you know what that does? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus is the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, and so, which was a common name. And there are other people, other Jews in the Scripture who are named Jesus, who are named uh, Joshua. And so he's identified not only by his name, his first name, but also by the place he's from, Nazareth. When you put those two together, what you have is you have the identification of a single individual, a historical person. And so here's, what, here's what's happening. The Lord identifies himself to Saul using his earthly name. The name that, I, that connects the, per, the voice speaking to Saul with the man that lived in Israel, who died, Saul's very aware of that, and who is claimed to have risen. Saul's, Saul's very aware of all that. A lot of people think that Saul of Tarsus met Jesus. I, I tend to agree. I, tend, there, I think there's some cause to believe that Saul met Jesus before, uh, before Christ went to the cross. I, don't, I can't prove that, but I think that's probably likely, especially seeing how he was learning in uh, Jerusalem, and that was contemporary with Christ. A lot of people knew about Jesus all right, at that time. So the Lord says, the man who was, the man who was going about doing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000, teaching the people, the one who cleansed the temple, the one who lived, and the one who died on the cross is the one who is speaking to you now. There could be no doubt who it was. There could be no doubt, as we saw this morning, who, what the implications of Jesus' words were. Immediately, immediately, the conviction fell powerfully upon Saul. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Have you ever asked God, since you have been saved, since you have received Christ, has there come been a day in your life, a time in your life, probably not once, where you've come to God and you said, God, what do you want me to do in this life? It's a good example to us. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. We'll come back to that in a minute. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. You see this? You see this? The fall of such a great man who profited into the Jews' religion. You see this? This man who is exalted, this man who is wise in the world, who is, who is uh, going up the ranks, someone who is very well respected. He had enough power and clout and authority to go to the, the chief priest, to the council of Sanhedrin, and, and to get asked for and receive letters. They, they were so trusted him with this commission that they gave him authority to go out to, even to Gentile cities to round up the Christians and bring them back. 
This, this was a man of, of influence, a man of honor, a man of power. You see it reading between the lines. You see this. And here he is being led by the hand, humiliated, humbled. His whole life's been useless, worthless. All that he built up in his religion is gone. And to boot, he's blind. So he sat there in his blindness three days. He sat in darkness because the Lord had a hard object lesson for him to learn. It was an object lesson of his own spiritual blindness. Sat, could not see. Imagine Saul sitting there, probably weeping a lot, right? Probably, probably grieving, blind, but yet seeing the blood of those that he had helped murder, right? That's probably what's happening. Feeling great regret, pouring out his heart to God, begging for God to forgive him for what he had done. And seeing in real life no no light, and, and having that truth reflected in his soul, living in darkness, thinking he's, he's, he sees. Like Jesus said, you say, we see, therefore your sins remain. Keep reading. Verse number 9, and, and, uh, and he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Verse 10, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. In the old city of Damascus, there is a street called Straight. It's about a, it's about a mile long because when the Greeks took over that part of the world, they laid the city of Damascus out in a grid. And there was one city that was about 1,500 meters, which is almost a mile from one side to the other, it's a street that went east to west, straight across, straight across Damascus. And that's where the Lord's telling him to go. And inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Think about this man, Ananias. Here's a man, a nondescript man, just mentioned here. One other place, Paul mentions him in his testimony later. Not an important person. A devout man, Paul says later, but just an average Christian. And yet he is called upon to do something uh, significant for Paul. We'll see about that in just a minute. But he was a, he, here's a man who no doubt loved his enemies. Paul's, Paul is his, uh, Saul here is his avowed enemy. Saul was coming for Ananias. Here is a man who not only loved his enemies, but he was a man who was obedient to the Lord's voice. He was a man who acted in faith despite fear. That's what you see in Ananias. And he says, the Lord says of him, that Saul, behold, he prayeth. That's why I looked up the Hebrew prayers the three, three times a day. It's not that Saul was unaccustomed to prayer. No, he was accustomed to prayer, but not this kind. He was accustomed to rote repetition, vain repetitions like the Lord mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the kind of praying he was doing before. This is an entirely different kind. This is the kind of prayer that a child of God understands. This is the kind of prayer of a man who knows God, praying from the heart, not just to, to pray to check off the boxes, He's learning to pray. 
How many of you? How many of you remember before you got saved? Say for those of you that maybe got saved when you were maybe a teenager or after. Did you ever pray before you became a Christian? Was was that a significant part of your life? I mean, you prayed whenever you needed something. Maybe something bad happened, we would pray. But really, to a person that doesn't know God, prayer is not a thing. Crying out to God is not, a, is not, a, is not something that, that people do regularly because they don't know God. It's just words. It's just words. One of the first things the Lord teaches people to do when they get saved is to pray. Even at the very moment when they, that's why the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, when that faith reaches out to God, right, calls out to God, that's, that's like the first time, you know. In Cambodia, it's, it's like that. You know, when somebody would call out to the Lord, sometimes that was the very first time they had ever prayed. The Lord teaches us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, also, Saul is praying to Jesus. <laughs> now, look at a few things here. I want to show you something. You see in verse 4, Jesus says, Why persecutest thou me? Verse 5, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, thereby identifying himself with God's people who are being persecuted. Verse 6 says, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Speaking of Ananias. Drop down to verse 12. Look at this. It says, Saul hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So there you have Ananias being mentioned again. Verse 17, look at that. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 19. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. You know one thing I noticed here is in each of these verses, there's a little indication. You remember what, Paul, what Saul's purpose is. He's going to Damascus to destroy Christians, to kill them, to imprison them, to drag them to Jerusalem to be punished. But at every step in this, you see the Lord the, you can see that the Lord is trying to, to push Saul, after he believes, to be among Christians. Like, think, think about what's happening here. He says, why persecutest thou me, the believers? He says, uh, arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee. He's sending him to a disciple. Uh, he can't, listen, he's not going to be filled with the Spirit. He's not going to receive the Spirit of God before he meets the, before he meets the disciples. He's, he's going to be blind until he meets the disciples. And then even after all of that happens and he's baptized, then he meets with the disciples in the, in the church in Damascus. The Lord would not allow even the great Apostle Paul to get along without his people. He now, those he once wanted to persecute, he now needed them. And the Lord made sure that even though Paul was given these great revelations and all those things, even though he, he was exceptional in that way, not even Paul was a maverick. Not even the apostle Paul was a maverick. Even he needed God's people. How much less we, or how much more we, we rather. And that's every time the Lord saves someone, 
What do you think baptism is about? Baptism is done where God's people are. He, the, Lord, the Lord urges them and goads them and leads them and shoves them in, to be in the midst of God's people, to be a part of a church. And that's always been the case, to be among God's people. We hear the gospel from God's people, and once we believe it, He, he guides us through uh, the Great Commission and discipleship, baptism, all those things through into God's people to integrate us into God's people. There are no individual Christians around. Just, just little lights all by themselves, you know, you know, separated from... No, that, that doesn't exist. The idea that we, you know, well, I worship God on my own and I don't need anybody else. False. 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 That is a gross error that is nothing but a front for somebody that either can't get along with other people, other Christians, or who doesn't want to put any zero effort or time into seeking God with God's people. It's just, it's just not scriptural. Now, in, in Acts chapter 9, so, so listen, I just want to say this, because Brother Stewart, when he was the pastor, he talked about this a lot, the, being, in the, being involved in the local church, right? And uh, getting integrated, finding your place and serving God in the local church. And he emphasized that a lot. It's not, about, it's not about having a big church, and it's, not a, it's certainly not about, you know, well, I'm the pastor, and I want more people to control. It has nothing to do with that. It's about God wants us together. God wants us together. It's, it's true of the pastor just as much as it's true of the, the person sitting in the pew. God wants us together. Even, like I said, even the great apostle Paul, first thing God did was put him in the midst of a, of a bunch of believers, a bunch of disciples. Those he once hated, now he loved. All right, let's pick up here in verse, we almost finished. Uh, verse uh, 13, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Now, hold your place here and look really quick with me at Galatians chapter 4. How many of you remember what happened to Jacob? I was just reading through this in my Bible recently. How many of you remember what happened to Jacob when he met the angel of the Lord in Genesis? And he wrestled him. Remember that? We know it was God. We know it was probably a Christophany. It was probably an appearance of Christ, right? Because... Uh, at the end of that, whenever the, the match was over and Jacob won, right? Basically, to put it in modern terminology, Jacob had, Jacob had the angel of the Lord in a headlock and wouldn't let go. And the Lord touched his thigh and crippled him so that he would let him go, and then he blessed him. That's basically how it works. And at the end of that, 
once he, he asked the angel's name, and or actually the Bible says the man, and the man said, why are you asking my name? And then, and then he realized, oh, no, I've just been wrestling with God. And he called the place Peniel, right? Because I have seen the face of God and have lived. That's what he said. So we knew that was a, an appearance of the Lord to Jacob. But you know what Jacob had? That was at, the, that was at a, a pivotal moment in Jacob's life because Jacob had really been a, a real scoundrel. You know, he made that promise at Bethel. And then he came back, right, after all 20 years, 20-something years in, uh, with his uh, father-in-law, Laban. And he comes back to that same place. And he's about to go meet uh, Esau, and he's scared. But that, that covenant that he made with God is coming back to him. And so he has an encounter with God. That's the key, an encounter with God. But he was left crippled with that encounter. Saul meets Jesus. He has an encounter with Jesus. You know what? He's blind. And there's good reason to think that that encounter with God was permanent. It handicapped him. Galatians 4, verse 13, look at what it says. Ye know... How through infirmity of the flesh. Infirmity. How many of you know what an infirmary is? Where do in, who goes to an infirmary? The sick. So the word infirmity refers to some sort of physical ailment. You know how through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first. So here's what he's saying. He preached, but, but something was in his body, an illness, something of that nature was in his body. That's what he's saying. Okay. What might that be? And my temptation, that is my trial, my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despise not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So despite the fact he had this obvious whatever, uh, it wasn't something hidden, they knew it, and it affected his presentation, whatever that was. So they saw it, they heard his message, they nevertheless received the gospel, and they loved Paul the Galatians. So much so that in verse 15, he says, Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes, plural, and have given them, plural, to me. See, that indicates that the infirmity had something to do with his eyes. Both eyes. And you find what, happen, what happens, I'm kind of putting two and two together, but what happens in the book of uh, Acts chapter 9 is he loses his eyesight and, and because he saw that great light, that encounter with Christ, and of course he gets his eyesight back, but something's not right with his eyes now. He has to serve God through it. In other words, he had an encounter with Christ. Uh, the Lord did something amazing in his life but like Jacob, who was crippled after his encounter with Christ, Saul, as a result of the blinding glory of God, was apparently permanently handicapped as a reminder of his encounter with Jesus and to help him see that he was dependent upon Jesus, as opposed to all of his life up to that point where he trusted in his own righteousness 
Here, here's a man who has an infirmity. He detested. Second uh, Corinthians talks about that, how he, he wanted that infirmity to go away if it's, if it's referring to the same one. You know what? That's, that's often true. I don't like saying this, but it's often true that an encounter with God is oft, often involves a price. And it's, there's, there's pain and there's something you carry with you permanently. That's just, it's just a fact of, you think of Paul, his, his eyes, but what about all the stripes he bore? There's other people in the Bible who also bore just great, had great suffering, scars, emotional or otherwise, that they bore as a result of their encounter with God. But it reminded him, it reminded him of that time that he was blind. It reminded him of how blind he had been. In his flesh, every day he got up, and maybe it was whatever it was, every day his eyesight, whatever that problem was, reminded him of where he had been. Last thing I want to show you is in verse number 20. Read verse 20 and 21. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. You see that zeal was harnessed to do the will of God now. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? They knew his past. Talked about this morning. We spent a lot of time talking about Saul's past. And, you know, I mentioned how that Many that are saved as children don't, don't ever, they remain simple concerning evil, if I can use our Sunday school lesson term. They remain simple concerning evil. They never know the depths of Satan. They never know the wickedness of sin, and that's a good thing. But then there are others who did experience those things and who live with those memories. And there are, uh, there are some in our church that are like that who there are probably people in your life that knew you, that are living right now, that knew you and could tell you what you were like, could testify to the way you were before you knew God. You know what? That's also a powerful testimony. You see, Saul was a man who was brought up in Judaism. He was a Pharisee. and He was not a man who was inclined to believe in Christ. He was a man who was inclined the opposite. And so when, when, when there was such a huge change in his life that wasn't natural, it was very unnatural. A huge conversion had took place in his life and it made him it precisely the opposite of what he once was. The very polar opposite. What that does is it testifies to the great power it shows, demonstrates. It's one thing if you're brought up in a Christian home and then you begin to follow the Lord and you begin, you know, you go maybe go into the ministry or serve God in some way because that's the way you're inclined to do. You know what? There's a, I, I'm not knocking that. That's a, there's a benefit to that. We've raised our kids to be like that, have we not? Right? Is that, is that the way we want to raise our kids? Yes. But there's others whom the Lord calls in different sets of circumstances who didn't have that. They were not, they were inclined to be drunkards, and fornicators, and drug addicts, and all these things, but then they met the Lord, and the Lord so radically changed their life, 
and did something in their life that wasn't what they were used to, wasn't what they were inclined to do. They were inclined to something entirely different, but the Lord just turned them upside down. And when people see that and knew them before, they say, that wasn't them. Something powerful has happened. Something remarkable has happened. Whatever power, whatever might, whatever thing that happened to them that subdued whatever they were before, there's something to that. Yeah, and that's also a valuable testimony. And that's the testimony of Paul. Now, his testimony didn't involve gross sin like we would think of, as, as I said this morning. But nevertheless, it was the exact opposite of everything a Christian should be. And therein, when a, when a person has that testimony... And the Lord converts them, changes them, flips them all around. The power of the gospel is seen in those people's lives. To take someone that was not inclined to God at all, was only inclined to sin, and yet God has totally changed them and put them to make them inclined toward the Lord. It's a, it's a mark, an evidence of the power of God. Let's pray together.